Being joined now by U.S. Senator Kevin Kramer, and we're going to talk about uh, a couple things here, the Dakota Access Pipeline, as well as energy infrastructure slash critical infrastructure, and then also some uh, economic talk, which is going to talk about some banking and access to banking as well. Uh, U.S. Senator Kramer, how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing very well, thanks, Jason. I'm uh, back in Bismarck for uh, for a day uh, and have a grandson with a birthday this weekend, so that's going to be great before I have to go back to the swamp on Monday morning. Well, good. At least you'll be back for a little bit of a birthday cake, a little celebration. I, do they do birthday cakes anymore, or is there problems with birthday cake these days? <laughs> well, um, actually, uh, no, we like to do birthday cakes in our family, and uh, cupcakes are oftentimes the, the new birthday cake, but that's okay with me uh, as long as it's got thick frosting. We did that for my son, uh, cupcakes one year, where it's like 30 cupcakes and then one old big slather of frosting over the top, and that was a big hit. People really liked that a lot, so uh, I thought that was kind of cool. Well, let's talk about the Dakota Access Pipeline a little bit. That's been popping up in the Everyone news. Everyone is. Yeah, a lot popping up in the news a little bit. And, you know, we're all kinds of different angles going this way and that way. Where, where are we at with it, and uh, what should people be, be taking a look at and concerned about? Well, it's, you know, here's where we are. It's, it's a, in a funny place. Maybe the best way for me would be to back up a little bit. So January 26th of this year, you might recall that the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, three judge panel, upheld the, uh, the vacating the Dakota Access Pipeline easement under um, the Missouri River, and then the requirement for the court to complete the, the environmental impact statement. So that environmental impact statement was the moving goalpost from a couple of years ago uh, by Judge Bosberg, um, and, the, and uh, he tried to shut the pipeline down then, the... the, uh, the, the uh, D.C. Circuit said, no, you don't have you know, enough information to do that, but the EIS is fine, remanded it back to him. Um, now he wants to shut the pipeline down, but he needs to get have findings. So, so January 26th, that when, when the uh, Court of Appeals upheld the, upheld the, the uh, vacating of the easement, they remanded it back to Judge Bosberg, said, you can, you can order the pipeline shut down if you want, but you've got to ha- have a hearing and get findings. Um, he couldn't order the pipeline to be shut down without, without uh, the, the findings necessary for the inject, injunctive relief. So on January 27th, he scheduled a February 10th status hearing to discuss the, the Court of Appeals decision and, and how the Corps expects to proceed given the vacating of the easement. easement. And this is a little wonky, Jason, and I'm not an attorney, but this is significant because, remember, the Corps would have, you know, the, it's the Corps that's the landlord. They're the defendant here. And so the judge wanted to get the court in front of him and find out how, or he was required to, find out um, how they would proceed. So at the request of the Department of Justice, Judge Bosberg delayed that, that February 10th um, status hearing until April 9th so that the new Biden administration could be briefed on the case. Now, that's a bit of a problem. That sent up a red flag for me because the DOJ is not supposed to be political. Um, the, the legal standard's been set. Um, this case has been going on for a long time. They shouldn't need to consult the, quote, the administration. They are the administration. They're the legal part of the administration. Anyway, during this, this status hearing on February or on April 9th, the DOJ declined to take any enforcement action against DAPL. In other words, shut down the operation. As, so as the pipeline continues to operate under the requirements of its easement. 
Bolsberg, the judge then, and the tribe's legal counsel were very disappointed by this, which leaves the judge to determine um, whether DAPL should continue to operate. DAPL was given until April 19th, so we're obviously coming up on that next week. Um, they were given until April 19th to update information to support its position to continue operating with the tribes able to file a reply brief. Um, on the 12th of April, DAPL requested that the Court of Appeals rehear their case, which is a long shot, and um, DOJ didn't make that request. <clears throat> so that's an appeal to what's called in, uh, an appeal in banc. In other words, they want the entire D.C. Circuit, not just a three-judge panel, to consider it. Anyway, at the August uh, 26, 2020 meeting that I had with Colonel Himes, the court said that they would allow DAPL to continue operating potentially with additional monitoring requirements uh, at the uh, Missouri River Crossing while they complete their DEIS. Um, at the tribe's request, that the court granted cooperating agency, I put that in quotes, cooperating agency status for the purposes of the environmental impact statement to the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, the Yankton Sioux, the Cheyenne River Sioux, and the Ogallala Sioux Tribes. And that, what that does, this is not a government-to-government -government consultation, but it grants them an active role in preparing the EIS beyond merely submitting comments in government-to-government consultation. So it's, it's a greater uh, status than government-to-government. -government. So their status based on, is based on specialized expertise that the tribes may possess in areas of like religious and culturally significant practices, uh, hunting and fishing practices, socioeconomics, environmental justice. And, the, and the, the letter outlines this timeline of collaboration from a kickoff meeting held April 1st to reviewing the final EIS and comments provided by the Corps by January 28th of next year. Okay, and that's a big, big backdrop, but and, uh, and, uh, ETP, uh, uh, in, uh, Energy Transfer Partners, has also requested that any and all assistance that's getting the Mandana Dots and the Rikara Nation to, to intervene in the lawsuit, so that they would like MHA to intervene. MHA did issue a public statement expressing concern that if DAPL was to shut down, um, the, and then you know they'd have some problems, and they asked for uh, formal government-to-government -government consultation with the Corps regarding this continuation of operation. Um, so about 60% of Mandanadasa Rikara oil is transported by DAPL, and Chairman Fox has indicated that they're expressing that their energy development views with the administration. So um, so they're going to get their consultation process, they being Mandanadasa Rikara, and that, that's where we are today. So, uh, Jason, next week, Judge Bosberg, I believe, um, without a lot more information, is probably going to, do what he's always wanted to do, and that's to shut the pipeline down temporarily. But that kicks in a whole bunch of other things. Well, let's talk about that for a second. I don't know if you're uh -huh. if you're able to speculate or not, but um, sure. there's there's a couple of ways that this is going to go. Number one, mm -hmm. the the the, the energy is going to keep flowing, and <clears throat> the critical infrastructure is going to be is going to be deemed critical, and you know the, the America is going to work as it's going to work. The other way is we're going to have some problems, and, and I, I, I see it going a couple ways. Number one, there's going to be some issues with jobs. That's, that's number one. I'll, you know more about that than me because all I know is that it's, that's a no-brainer. The, the other part is there, there's a whole emission side to this where um, <laughs> uh, when, when we're looking at the people are trying to shut this down in the name of uh, environmental climate activism, when what they're going to do is just put everything on, on the road and rails, aren't they? 
crazy, isn't it? Well, yes. okay, yeah, and talk so, to me. Okay, let's, let's talk some civility here. What's going on? Yeah. Common sense. That's called common sense. And you're not allowed to apply common sense here, Jason. Don't you know? So here, you're exactly right. The irony is so rich. Jason, if I might just for a moment speak to the, the point of left-wing environmental activism. What these folks want to do is what they really are doing, whether they want to or not, if they believe in global climate change and the contribution of greenhouse gas emissions to that, in other words, and, and people uh, uh, contributing, they're doing everything backwards. They're, they're simply transferring their guilt to other countries. They're going to make us more dependent, not less dependent, on oil from other places that produce it with much more greenhouse gas emissions. They're not going to change the, the demand side of the formula at all. And then with regard to transferring you know, the movement of, of say, Madan Hidatsa, Arikara Nation, MHA Nation's oil, 60% of which goes, goes on uh, DAPL now, transferring it to trucks and to, to rail, much greater, <clears throat> double or more greater greenhouse gas emissions that would be emitted as a result of, of shutting down the pipeline. So you're exactly right. The other thing to, to keep in mind is if Judge Boasberg orders the Corps of Engineers to, to exercise the vacating of the easement then by shutting down the pipeline, and remember, it's the Corps of Engineers' action after that that would actually lead to shutting down the pipeline. That's significant for this reason. We often think of the Code Access Pipeline as the defendant. You might think of, of, uh, of um, MHA Nation as a... Um, you know, an intervener, although they're not at this point, but they're certainly an interested party, so they would be a defendant. State of North Dakota could be a defendant um, in all of this because of the loss of, well, two things, loss of revenue and the fact that it's the state of North Dakota that has the authority over siting a pipeline. That's why, the, that's why it's cited where it's cited by the, the, uh, the Public Service Commission and with their expertise, expertise and their legal standing. All of that's to say, if the Corps of Engineers exercises the judge's order to shut down the pipeline, they then ordered Dakota Access Pipeline to shut down the pipeline. It would take weeks to do that. They'd have to determine what the process would be for doing that. They have that authority. And then DAPL and the state of North Dakota and, and uh, MHA Nation would all respond to that order, not to Judge Bosberg, not to the D.C. Circuit, but they could file their own injunction, their own request for preliminary injunction for, for relief or, or permanent, which would hopefully lead to a permanent um, relief. So there are a number of ways this could go. I believe, Jason, that the pipeline may be ordered to be shut down. I, I, you know, I would bet, if I was a betting person, I'd probably bet on that. But I don't believe the pipeline will get shut down. I, I just think, to your point, what's going to happen. The critical infrastructure argument that you make is a solid one. I just don't know that Remember, these definitions are always flexible depending on who you're talking to. And um, you already pointed out gross inconsistencies and hypocrisy in the whole movement of environmental justice. Yeah, that is one thing. It depends on whose courtroom you're in. You know, they can. Right. They, right. They, 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 we've seen it all before. My courtroom, my rules. So that's how it goes sometimes. Yep. And just remember, and this is where people should be encouraged, um, that. During Donald Trump's four years and Mitch McConnell's term as majority leader, he nominated and we confirmed over 150 uh, federal district judges, 53 um, appellate judges, and three Supreme Court justices who are conservative 
who who believe in states' rights and the rights of the individual and free commerce. And so um, I like our chances both in the short run and the long run. So if the judge were to order a shutdown, they don't shut it down the next day. It, it there's right. And what you're saying is that there might even be enough appeals and, and other people coming to the table that it might not even shut down in the end to begin with, to end with. That's what I'm, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. That's ex- to begin with or end with. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because you can change venues if somebody else is suing because the Bozberg decision and the D.C. Circuit decision is based on um, the easement issue, but the but um, and and this the the the, uh, the lawsuit by Earth Justice on behalf of the uh, of the Standing Rock Nation. So suddenly, if the court shuts the pipeline down, you've got new defendants, new plaintiffs, really that could emerge, and I would expect would emerge, and that would be perhaps in the courtroom in Bismarck or Fargo. Obviously, there'd be tremendous costs, not only to the companies and the construction companies and the workers and et cetera, but my guess is that the, the partners involved, uh, uh, Energy Transfer, is it, is it Phillips and Marathon and en- Enbridge? Those are the other ones, right? There are others, yeah. Yeah, I'm number, sure. number no. of partners involved, but uh, I did see some sort of figures that it would, you know, just to even drain it and go through that whole process, I mean, that's... You're talking public companies that, you know, that's real costs here, people. I mean, not only is it going to shift the, shift the uh, um, cash flow of, of, of these companies, but then they got to go and, and turn around and, and, and use it to, you know, reclaim, if you will, do the reclamation. To reclaim and then, and, then, and then reroute the, the pipeline. Yeah. One of the considerations in the environmental impact statement that they're forced to do, remember, energy transfer partners and, and, their, and their partners – built the Dakota Access Pipeline in that place because that's where they were legally, that's where their legal easement is. That's what was granted to them. That was, that, that was a legal process, both at the state and the federal level. So, so one of the considerations is to consider another route. Uh, and by the way, specifically, it was, it was brought to them by the, the, uh, one of the politicals at the Corps of Engineers that they considered this northern route that had previously been considered. And that northern route would in, would be upstream from another thousands of people, including thousands of Native Americans, would be in, would be further downstream from from this pipeline. So if that's their concern, this is an, again another rich irony and inconsistency, if if not a hypocrisy. So um, yeah, th- th- there'd be a lot of costs. Plus, the biggest problem for a lot of us is. It, it stifles investment in drilling. It, it would stifle investment in drilling in the, at the MHA Nation and McKenzie County and Williams County and all, all of the other counties uh, that enjoy the, uh, the riches of the Bakken. And remember, too, that the environmental impact statement that would continue going on, and it will be done a year, by a year from now in all likelihood, it's an environmental impact study not only on the current operation of the, of the Dakota Access Pipeline, which has been operating safely and efficiently for four years now, Jason, but their their um, expansion from about 570,000 barrels per day to 1.1 million barrels per day. So that that's going to attract a lot more drilling and a lot more production, and that's an energy security, national security, economic security benefit that will go completely the other way. There's a, We're already suffering a little bit from... from um, uncertainty 
because this thing's been wrapped up in court for so long. You know, we've been covering the Meridian Energy Group and uh, the Davis Refinery and just some of the some of the legal battles. I mean, they've spent probably an additional two years fighting a lot of climate activists and that sort of thing. And uh, that really know how to work the system very well, by the way. They do. Um, they do. But, in in retail, there's a thing called shrinkage. It's how much like kind of theft they have, you know, either employee theft or yep. just okay. Yep. I almost wonder if that's where we're at in energy now, to where the new normal, if you will, like shrinkage is in retail. That you got to almost put a certain amount aside for legal costs because these new environmental climate activists are really impacting the marketplace. Uh, just your thoughts on that. No, there's no question about it. It's all an, ad, an adding to the cost of doing business, which adds to the cost of the product that you're creating, which adds to the cost to the consumer, whether it's at the pump or, or you know, at the lumberyard or, you know, at the grocery store or whatever it might be. It adds to the cost of everything. I mean, I, I you know, I'm the, I'm the, um, the ranking member on the Transportation and Infrastructure Subcommittee of the Environment and Public Works Committee. It's a, it takes an average of four and a half years to permit a road, Jason, a road. And in many cases, it's 10 to dozen years to, to permit a road. It doesn't take that long to build a road. It takes that long to permit. All of that costs lots of money. Nobody wins by that except lawyers. That's the only people that win by that. So it just adds to the cost and the burden. And the people that carry that cost and burden, of course, are always the consumers at the end of the, at the, end of the value chain. It kind of reminds me of, uh, you mentioned lawyers, because that's what I had wrote, uh, written down as we were talking, is that the, the, the legal industry is just having gangbusters. They're the ones who are benefiting the most out of this. So, you know, as, as, as multiple industries suffer, there is one that kind of seems like it's doing okay. And it's, I'm not picking on lawyers here, because that's, that's just how the ebbs and the flows. Well, that's how it works, the ebbs and the flows of the economy, you know. But it reminds me of kind of, this issue that was uh, emerging in the late 90s. And then you, you and I touched on it at Governor Dalrymple's Economic Summit at the Radisson uh, about, I want to say 2015 it might have been, but uh, we called it uh, the, the Facebook marketplace and the app marketplace, if you will, which is really the digital economy. And the, it, it, back in the 90s, they called it Thought Workers, and in the uh, 2000s, I called it the intangible versus the tangible, like selling advertising for a radio station is intangible. Selling tires is tangible. So it's yeah. very, and, and when you're a banker or you're, you're an investor, an intangible is hard to invest in. A tangible is really easy. It's black and white. It's commodity-based pricing, this and that. We have Your such assets on the other side of it, backing it up. Yeah, and and we, you know, we've gotten into such a place in America now that you know we're lawyers. That's a thought worker, okay? You know, um, yeah. we've gotten to a place now where we've become really a white collar society to to where blue collar is is getting shipped out, and we're trying to make a resurgence, and we're doing our best to get the trade schools back involved, this and that, but. Um, I'm, I, you know, you're talking about fairness and access to banking. That's where I'm going with this, to where the marketplace really has changed to where the thought worker, the intangible marketplace is almost as important now as the tangible commodity place in the economy now. So it almost seems like the banking should, you know, we should be a little bit different now when it comes to maybe not having as much collateral before or having as much 
um, uh, you know, government contracts or big contracts or whatever the case is. Are you following me at all? Am I, am I, am I, I am a little bit. So you're, you're touching on a whole bunch of issues. Totally, totally. Sort of large one. Whether it's the soft, you know, sort of the soft side of, 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 uh, of business, that you referenced white collar, we definitely have transitioned to more of a service economy. Mm-hmm. But even a service economy has to move its goods and its services some way, somehow. Without Whether it's moving people on jets and trains and automobiles or moving data over broadband and, and, and through the digital infrastructure. Or, of course, at the end of the day, the day you, you do have to manufacture all of these things and so the so you can't completely abandon that but we sort of we've trans- made that transition but even beyond that now you, you've got all that but then you've touched on the regulatory side the legal side all of that adds no value to anything it just costs mm-hmm. um with regard to fair access to banking now and, and i would maintain some of some of the loss of a lot of the blue collar um jobs that have been shipped Overseas, you know, in the in the in the quote free free trade era, um, you know, we've sort of lost sight of some of that. Now, to your point, it's coming back because COVID nineteen has exposed the vulnerabilities of a of a global supply chain to a country like the United States. And, and sure, things are cheaper, but if you believe that slave labor is okay, or you believe that stealing your IP is okay, sure, let let China build everything, including our pharmaceuticals. Another large topic. With regard to fair access to banking, what I get at a little bit there is that you know, financial service providers are increasingly employing these subjective category-based evaluations to, to deny certain persons and businesses access to financial services. Um, and it's in response to, to what you and I have been talking about, to pressure from advocates from across the political spectrum, usually the left because they're more activist-oriented, whose policy objectives are served when banks deny customers financial services, certain customers. So, so we, you know, I believe that banks are, should be free to provide or deny financial services to any individual customer. Um, but it has to be done on, on empirical data, evaluated consistent with the bank's established impartial risk management standards. And, and some of these financial service providers, which are supported, by the way, by the taxpayer and enjoy significant privileges in the financial system. Their, their, their insurance is backed up by the federal government, for example, FDIC. But they, they should not be in the business of acting as de facto regulators or, or unelected legislators by withholding services to otherwise creditworthy businesses based on these subjective political reasons or biases or prejudices. Um, and so, so, you know, we're talking about fossil fuel industry. We're talking about um, firearms industry. Uh, we're talk- whether it's retail, manufacturing, um, you're talking about, you know, uh, private prisons, for example, uh, you know, have been excluded from a lot of this. And so uh, I actually have a bill that I introduced that now has 33 sponsors on it called the Fair Access to Banking Act. I sit on the banking committee. And um, it prohibits banks that have over $10 billion in, in total consolidated assets or their subsidiaries, so if you have, you know, a number of banks, um, but it, but it prohibits banks that refuse to do business with any person in, in compliance with our act from using discount window lending programs. It terminates their status as an insured depository institution, in other words, receiving FDIC banking, if they refuse to do business with any person, um, you know, in, in compliance with the bill. So you're right. We've got to go after this. I just had a, a meeting the other day with Jamie Dimon, 
Um, he, he read my bill. He saw my concerns. He called and said, can I come and talk to you? And Jamie, Jamie Dimon with J.P. Morgan Chase, that's, that's one of the largest banks in the world, the most profitable bank uh, in the world. Um, you know, they have in, in some of their um, in some of their standards, you know, they've, they've touched on a few of these things, but he's been the most reasonable of the major banks. I've got Citibank coming in to see me. I've got Wells Fargo coming in to see me. But he, he's been pretty vocal in the last week or two saying, look, as we transition, to a, a, a you know a, a carbon constrained economy, we can't just turn the lights off and, and and just shut down everything fossil fuel. We'll kill our whole economy, and we'll just again transfer um, emission standards to the rest of the world, which don't have the same standards as we have. We had a delightful conversation where he was actually lecturing me some of my own talking points, but lecturing me on the fact that. That the Paris Accord, as an example, the United States was the one country that's been reducing its its uh, greenhouse gas footprint, its carbon footprint, in recent years at a much faster pace than others. While there, the the Paris Accord allows China and India, the biggest polluters of greenhouse gas emissions, to continue to increase theirs. He said, and so he's been getting more public, um, just saying, you know, let's transition, but we can't just, you know, stop stop investing in fossil fuels and think that the American economy is going to be okay or that we're going to lead, you know, a carbon-constrained future. So a lot of information, but I, here's what I would say, Jason, this is why what you're doing is so critically important. I, maybe I say this every time we talk, but what happens is the left is so much better at communicating. They're so much more activist-oriented. They're so much more emotional. Conservatives, including fossil fuel industry and, the, and, and several others, they just want to be left alone. So if the only people that, that the presidents of these major banks are hearing from are their proxies, uh, you know, or, or the, these uh, advocacy groups from the left, then they're going to go that direction. We need to stand up to that and say, no, 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 no. Here's the other side of the story, and, um, you know, you've got to consider, consider it all. Well, it is different. You know, I brought up the, you know, the... Um the commodities and the, uh, which would be collateral, sorry, collateral. And of course that government right. contracts for a long time were, were collateral by banks. And so, and then yep. that, that apparently became too unfair because of X, Y, Z. So now it's almost seems sure. like they're overcorrecting it to where, uh, in fact, I talked to someone the other day that is out of uh, a big, not, not an Accenture business, but a big company like that, that is kind of specializing in this ESG stuff uh, oh, yeah. with, with banks We're and everything. Yeah. And and she said to me, she goes, Jason, you wouldn't believe it, that banks are now being advised in some cases to, to you know, get behind things that don't even make money, but because it's a good social cause, for example. And not that they're doing that, but those conversations are happening. And so I'm glad that you're having these public conversations because it just seems like this game of ping pong is going back and forth and back and forth. And at the end of the day, this is some pretty serious stuff we're talking about here. And, you know, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of people that have, uh, you know, their businesses and their skin in the game and that sort of thing. And if it's just, you know, we're going to go off of, you know, social cause of the week, that's, that's a tough go for a lot of people. You know. Remember, at the end of the day, a business person, an entrepreneur solves a problem. You've done it many times. You find opportunities that exist because some, some there's a void in something and you fill it. Well, that's what b bankers do with, the, with money. They, 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 and at the end, they need to make money to, to continue doing it. And so to your point, these activists are 
forcing, and by the way, these activists have some strong supporters on some in some pretty important places, like, you know, the banking committee I serve on is the same committee that Sherrod Brown is the chairman of. <laughs> if you don't know Sherrod Brown, you know, just watch a little C-SPAN and you'll, you'll be, uh, you won't be impressed. Um, and don't get me wrong, I like Sherrod, but he is nothing like, like we are out here. Um, Elizabeth Warren, I think probably a more iconic figure in, in um, the far left in, in terms of beating up on banks. And they, what they want is they want banks to invest in things that lose money rather than make money. I'm saying you shouldn't be prohibited from investing in things that make money if, they, if they're credit worthy just because they're in the wrong industry. And, and so, it, you know, we've got to have a balance to all this. And by the way, to, to your other point, banks right now have a lot of capital. And the, part of the reason they have a lot of capital is because my, many of the regulations that came from, came from the Dodd-Frank uh, legislation of years ago uh, under Obama that Elizabeth Warren championed require them to carry much larger capital balances than they need to carry. And what that means is, in fact, Mr. Dian, Jamie, Jamie Dimon said to me the other day that they could have invested a lot more during the pandemic than they were if it weren't for the regulations requiring them to have all this capital on the si- sitting on the sidelines. Instead, of course, the Federal Reserve was printing more money and, and investing in it or backing it. And, 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 uh, and we're putting out, you know, cheap and free money all over the place to, to get through this pandemic economic downturn. And so here banks were sitting on money. And we, we know this is true, not just of the big banks. This is true of a lot of our community banks as well. And the more cheap money that gets printed in our economy, the more, the more liquidity that gets put into the marketplace that doesn't have a place to go, um, that, just, that just means that these banks are sitting on large sums of money that they're not able to um, invest because of weird rules and regulations. They're not able to, to lend it. And it's, it's, it's upside down, and we've got to get this, uh, this whole system back to equilibrium. Well, what's next then? What should people do next? Obviously, we got to wait for the DAPL uh, decision before anything can be done there. But even then, it's not necessarily done. We'll probably see it in, in, in some appeals happen. But when it comes to some of this uh, uh, fair, fairness and banking and, and just getting access to capital, what, what do you recommend for people? Well, stay close to your banker and your credit union members, uh, your credit unions. They're, they're advocating. Uh, obviously, they want to be in the business of lending. Th- things like, um, you know, things like the, the, the capital balances, the ca- capital carry and things like that, we're working on to, to make sure that banks have enough of a balance to, to be, you know, to be safe, but also don't, aren't sitting on so much that they're not doing any good. Um, the price of money, you know, is really cheap. I would expect it to come up a little bit if, if we see some inflation. We're starting to see some inflation. Uh, we're seeing it in commodities for sure. We're seeing it in lumber and building costs. We're seeing it in oil. You know, we're seeing it in, in, in other, some of the food commodities as well. But just stay close to your banker. The, the other thing to want, look out for, remember, we're, we're talking about big infrastructure package. Um, Joe Biden wants to spend $2.7 trillion, only 6% of it, of it, of it on roads and bridges. They're proposing an infrastructure package that spends more money incentivizing and creating um, uh, electric vehicles and electric um, infrastructure for the vehicles than they do on roads, bridges, waterways, combined, combined, if you can imagine. And uh, so we need, to get, we need to get some common sense back and start. We need a big infrastructure package. We need to include the private sector in that. We need to expand the, the tax base so that it's not just um, you know fossil fuel in, uh, 
generated automobiles, but electric vehicles as well, paying their, their way on the highways to, to maintain and build them. We need to make sure that the highway trust fund is being spent on transportation infrastructure, not on other social programs. And, um, and to, we include the private sector because just by, just by not allowing the Keystone XL pipeline to be built, you're taking billions of, of uh, private sector dollars out of the infrastructure um, you know, framework and it makes zero sense whatsoever. So um, elections have consequences. We're in the fight. We appreciate the great job you do, Jason, in, in informing um, your listeners and readers and, and uh, subscribers because uh, it's, it's a very important public within our public.